0: WCNC Charlotte. This is Flashpoint, where power and politics collide, and the tough questions get asked and answered.
1: Thanks for joining us here on Flashpoint. I'm Ben Thompson. The election here in the Carolinas is now over, and despite what was mixed results across the country, Republicans in North Carolina, they have a lot to celebrate this week. The GOP winning across the board from that big U.S. Senate seat, two spots on the state Supreme Court, and gains in the General Assembly, where state Senate now has a super majority, the Republicans do. In the State House, they're just one vote short of overturning a veto from the Democratic governor. In a few minutes, we're gonna break down the results with political professor Michael Bitzer. But first, joining us now on Flashpoint, Speaker of the North Carolina House, and perhaps more importantly for our viewers, native son of Kings Mountain, Republican Tim Moore. Speaker Moore, thanks for coming on, we appreciate it.
2: Hey, great to be with you
1: today. Um, your party had a much better week here in North Carolina than it did
2: nationally. The first question, why do you think that is? Well, I believe that uh, you know, North Carolinians recognize the, the hard work that the state legislature has done in North Carolina. You know, it's not an accident that North Carolina has been ranked the top state in the country for business, uh, that we continue to grow. You look at other states around the country uh, that are losing population, where folks are moving from. Uh, And it's because a lot of times because they're high tax, high regulation uh, and just make it difficult to do business there. Uh, We have in North Carolina chosen a different path, one to reduce taxes, one to make it a a business friendly environment, uh, investing in education, investing in public safety, uh, doing those things to make it so that businesses and people want to locate here. And I believe that's why people voted the way they did uh, on election day. And so uh, we're very proud that we actually expanded our numbers in the State House and, uh, and of course the State Senate expanded their numbers and actually obtained a supermajority there as well. So we're, uh, we're, we're you know, feeling very good about the way things have gone and the way this upcoming session is going to go as well. Uh, I know Ronald Reagan had a saying that
1: one should not speak ill of other Republicans, and I'm sure you probably believe in that as well. But, but
2: what do you think did not translate nationally at least? You know, I don't know. I think I think the jury is still out on that and I believe that when it comes to uh, the national environment that we need to do a true deep dive about uh, why things did not go as well as they should have, particularly in other states. But, uh, you know, I can compare that with North Carolina where, you know, every single statewide judicial race was won by a Republican. And I think that was due in large part to just how extreme this current Democratic Supreme Court has been on issues such as voter ID where they essentially struck down a constitutional amendment adopted by the people in 2018 for photo ID for voting. By the way, that's something we're going to fight to see implemented in this upcoming session. It's the people voted for it. 36 other states have it. It only makes sense to have that as some baseline protections to prevent election fraud. But they also struck down laws that limited sex offenders. Um, And that was actually, that was a little personal because I had the, the bill that they struck down. uh, was a bill known as the Jessica Lunsford Act. Uh, That was a bill that I sponsored years ago uh, when, even when I was in the minority here that received overwhelming support. So, you know, folks are tired of crime. Folks are tired of those things. And so they were able to look at the current court that was there. And that's why I think they lost their seats. And I think now they're gonna be looking to all of us uh, to work for the betterment of the state moving forward in this upcoming session. You're one
1: short of a supermajority in the House, though, but you do have some conservative Democrats. Are you operating like you have a
2: supermajority? Uh, what I've called it is a governing supermajority, uh, because we do have uh, we do have a few uh, conservative and moderate uh, Democrats who will vote with us on on a lot of issues, uh, particularly on business issues. When it comes to social issues, uh, those can always be. Uh, you know, those can always be tougher, frankly, even within your you know, own caucus. So I would tell you everything that we're going to do. We're going to approach it the way we have this last session. We're going to try to build consensus. We're going to seek to be bipartisan as much as we can and try to come up with ideas that folks can rally around. But there will be those times uh, when when there's just going to be a disagreement probably between the legislature and the governor. And when those occasions occur, I feel confident that we'll be in a position to ensure that the, the will of the legislature becomes the law.
1: This week you told um, reporters that you expect to take up Medicaid expansion next year, but as you know, it's been seven years. We're only one of 12 states without Medicaid expansion. You have a governor Republican Senate willing to act now. This would now then push back expansion money another year. On behalf of the hundreds of thousands of North Carolina residents that fall in that gray area that can't pay for private insurance, but don't qualify for the states unexpanded Medicaid plan. You know those folks are frustrated. What What is the holdup when it comes to Medicaid expansion after all this time?
2: Well, a couple of things. One, you're not talking about a full year. This is November. We come back in session in the new session in January. So you're talking about a couple of months is what you're talking about. Uh, I do think that it'll be an issue that we take up very soon in the session. Uh, really, And really the disagreement that the, between the House and the Senate when it came to the expansion part, was not so much the expansion it itself, because as you and your viewers know, the House or probably know the House actually overwhelmingly passed a bill that would move forward with expansion. So we did that several months ago. Uh, the issue was that the, uh, the, the Senate was interested in adding a few other things to it that had to do with scope of practice for uh, medical practitioners had to do with what's called the certificate of need law, which is a very important and very Tough issue. So uh, those issues probably complicated it a little bit more than some of the others. But you know the parameters and the guidelines that, that we put in in terms of cost of uh, cost accountability, making sure there's some kind of work requirement and of some kind so that folks don't abuse the system and ensuring that if the federal match goes away, that the state will not be on the hook. Uh, those things are, are a part of what's being negotiated. So I think it will end up being fine. So one I would say is it probably won't be that long before we deal with it. But number two, uh, there are a lot of issues surrounding it. And and one other thing, you mentioned the folks in the gray area, actually under the COVID uh, protocols that are in place right now, most of those folks are already being covered and would continue to be covered anyway uh, on into the beginning of next year. So I don't know of any situation where folks are gonna drop off in between anyway. Fair, Fair point.
1: Our conversation with Speaker of the North Carolina House, Tim Moore, continues after this. Welcome back to Flashpoint. We now continue our conversation with one of the most powerful men in North Carolina right now. Speaker of the House, Tim Moore. Let's talk redistricting. We often talk about it here on this show. Uh, perhaps one of the most understood, least sexy issues uh, of our time, but, but so important. You, I mean, you know better than most how important it is. Uh, the GOP expected drop some new lines next year when it comes to the con- congressional districts. But we just came off an election in which court-drawn lines, created a 7-7 split, Democrats and Republicans. Why is it a bad thing to have a 7-7 split in our, in
2: our house delegation in DC? Well, I believe that the, that the legislative districts should reflect the population of the state. And so what that means is because we, you know, we don't elect candidates statewide for Congress uh, or for the legislature for that matter. And so with the way districts are drawn by taking into account uh, counties, by taking into account regions, uh, as you do that, it, most of North Carolina tends to be more Republican-leaning, even if the registration, perhaps. I mean, look, we won seats in the State House. Where, where, And again, districts this time that were essentially drawn by Democrats. We won seats in the State House uh, that we've never won before, and where the majority of the voters in those districts are Democrats, which means, regardless of registration, those voters actually chose to vote Republican this year, and then your unaffiliateds broke that way, but there really is a, a a pretty big distinction among the rural areas and in the urban areas and the suburban areas, as you guys have talked about on the show before. Uh, the, the voters, for example, in in Cleveland County, where I am, just a few miles, you know, I'm 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 25 minutes basically from the airport from Kings Mountain, right? Yeah. That close, right? You. I could probably get to the airport in Charlotte closer than some folks who are in South Charlotte. You're your borderline southeast. suburban at that point. Yes, it, you know, it is. But that's a, but that's a different voter than than the voter in some of the part in, in a lot of parts of Mecklenburg County. Well, what you see in terms of the the elections is that uh, you have a lot of red areas surrounding Mecklenburg, and Mecklenburg is very blue. Uh, but if you, but within Mecklenburg, there's some red areas as well. So, for example, on this thing on the State House and the new maps of the 12, I believe 12 seats in the House from Mecklenburg, we're only going to have one Republican representing Mecklenburg County. I think it would be healthy if there were more Republicans, for example, representing Mecklenburg. And so it's the urban and suburban areas. That's where your population center is, right? So when folks ask, why shouldn't it be a 7-7 or anything like that? Well, it's because when you draw based on population, which, by the way, the Constitution requires, because the urban and suburban areas are more densely are more densely packed with population, those districts tend to be extremely blue. You have districts there that are very democratic. It's just the way it is with voters. I mean, I, I would submit, you, you, if you were to try to draw a Republican congressional district in Durham and Orange Counties, you're not going to have much luck doing that. Well, okay. that's because of the makeup of voters in that area. I
1: would but, love for you. I would love to have you come on talk another time specifically about this. Urban versus rural disconnect. I, I do want to talk about one or two other issues just real quickly. Um, abortion, given the Dobbs decision, g- given the results of this past week's election, election, how do you see is a the way Republicans move forward that honors your all's beliefs um, and also is politically savvy?
2: So I want to have a a a frank and consensus type conversation uh, with, with with a number of folks about how we address this. I think when you discuss uh, issues such as abortion, you have to also talk about access to health care for women, access to health care for, for children, uh, making the adoption process easier. And you know, when a woman is facing this decision, she's probably facing one of the greatest, if not the greatest crisis of her life at that moment, and really helping try to look at it in a compassionate way to ensure that, that she has the resources um, should she decide to to have a child and you know in terms of determining like you know at what point should something happen that that's a conversation that needs to happen but I, but i'll certainly want to make clear that i'm one of those who believes that when it comes to you know, the exceptions of like rape incest and the life and the life and health of the mother we should always recognize those exceptions so uh, the key is how do you know balancing that to a certain point at which a child is clearly viable and so all of that together is gonna going to be put in. And so my, my pledge to you and to the viewers is, we're gonna do this in a way that, that makes sense. It's a tough issue, but I think if folks approach it with a common sense view and talking to one another and listening and not screaming at each other, uh, we can do this in a great way that uh, that really is, is, um, is comprehensive and is a way that, it, that is fair to all North Carolinians.
1: I've gone way over time, but two quick questions. I need two quick answers.
2: The number one priority for the uh, General Assembly next year, according to you? Uh, the economy and workforce development. We need to make sure we have a ready supply of workers to take these new jobs that are coming to North Carolina, and we need to do what we can to make make it so that uh, it's affordable to live in this great state. And there were rumblings this last year
1: that you might run for a House seat for Congress. Uh, That didn't work out. Uh, What are your political ambitions going forward? You expect to stay there? The General
2: Assembly as the Speaker? Uh, I'm going to, I do intend to serve another term as Speaker of the House here for these uh, next two years, and I imagine I'll have my hands full working on that to uh, worry about much else because i tell you, we have a lot of work ahead of us, a lot of issues to deal with, but I'm just uh, really thankful and appreciative that the voters of this great state uh, chose to help us expand our numbers and allow us to continue moving North Carolina uh, in a a very positive direction. All right, Speaker Moore, you are an important voice in, in our state
1: and in our region, and we hope you come back here on Flashpoint real soon. Thank you. Thank you. All right, more Flashpoint after this. Welcome back to Flashpoint. Taking a deeper dive into some of the races here this past week. First up, the Senate race. Uh, Bud winning with 51% of the vote. We talked about that. Uh, a lot of folks say it's because of a place like uh, Anson County, about 90 minutes southeast of Charlotte, that typically Democrats have done better. Sherry Beasley only getting about 46% of the vote compared to, say, Joe Biden just a few years ago, who got 52% of the vote. Two of the congressional races now, uh, District 13, the one swing district here. Wiley Nickel beating out newcomer uh, Bo Hines. And then here in our neck of the woods, an interesting one, Jeff Jackson winning with 57% of the vote. That's Southern Charlotte, Charlotte, as well as Gaston County as well. A really interesting takeaway with those two wins as well. The North Carolina delegation now in the U.S. House is evenly split for the first time in a long time. Seven Democrats and seven Republicans. A big difference from what it's been in years past. Joining us now, Catawba College professor of politics, Dr. Michael Bitzer. Thanks for coming on. We appreciate it, as always, Professor. Good to be with you. All right. So here, at least on a statewide level, Republicans performed pretty well, won some of the big races, uh, both statewide and at the General Assembly, um, but not so much on a nationwide level. Why do you think that is?
0: Well, I think some of the differences may be, of course, in turnout dynamics. What we know in elections since 2010 is that registered Republicans in North Carolina have the highest voter turnout, and it will take about another month to get that formal data back. But I suspect that yet again, this is the dynamic at play in North Carolina. Registered Democrats always tend to Meet the state average, but that is not sufficient to be able to beat Republicans statewide. So, yes, Ted Budd had a very good evening. Republicans won control of the General Assembly, supermajority status in the state Senate, one vote away from supermajority in the state House and they claimed both state supreme court races uh, that were critical to shifting majority control to the republicans come january so republicans had a very good night here in north carolina not so much nationally because the expectations were much greater than the performance and the reality of what they achieved
1: and it doesn't it's not predetermined to be like this because uh, republicans here In North Carolina are outnumbered as far as registered voters go, both unaffiliated and Democrats outnumber them. So it literally is, as you point out, just the fact that that they actually get out the vote better than some of the other groups.
0: They they have that dynamic, and the largest group of registered voters is unaffiliated at 36 percent, but they consistently have the lowest turnout rate compared to both Republicans and Democrats. So this has been a pattern in North Carolina politics. We are a stuck battleground state, but at the federal level, at least, it tends to lean to Republicans.
1: Does that mean, are, are we a purple state or, or not? Sometimes I, I say we're a purple state and I, get, hear, I hear from Democrats are like, no, we're not a purple state, we're a blue state. Then I say we're a purple state and Republicans say, we're not a purple state, we're a red state. What are we?
0: We are indeed a purple state. If you go back to 2018 and take all the congressional votes, it was a 51 49 Republican lean state. This year, with the U.S. Senate race, it was a 52 48 Republican state. Back in 2020, just two short years ago, we elected a Republican president, a Republican U.S. Senator, and a Democrat for governor. We are the prototypical purple state but at various levels we have slight tints or hues to either red or blue
1: some would say we're electorally erratic at times um and and unpredictable um what lessons can we take away from Tuesday as we now go into 2024.
0: I think the big question on the Republican Party side is how much real influence does Donald Trump have within presidential politics, particularly for that party? And will Republicans start looking around for another potential standard bearer, someone like Ron DeSantis, who had an overwhelming performance in Florida, beating uh, the Democrat there soundly? I think he will use that as a projection tool to say, look at me nationally. I can win in Florida. Florida has been trending more and more Republican, but he can make the claim that he won decisively when Republicans nationwide and particularly Trump candidates fail to do so. For Democrats, they are looking at this election and saying, you know what? Joe Biden may not be such a bad presidential candidate to begin with because he was able to limit the uh, damage done to the party during this midterm. I think that they will take a second look at Biden. Biden is hinting that he's going to run again. There will be some grumbling within Democrats because he is so old, but I think he was able to say to in 2022, I able I was able to help the Democratic Party, not hurt it. I
1: want to talk about the Senate race just uh, real quickly. Um mm-hmm. when you when you look at the candidates that Democrats have run, whether it's Jerry Beasley, For a brief moment, Jeff Jackson, Cal Cunningham, Kay Hagan back in the day. um, They've tried a variety of different approaches um, and sort of some sort of unicorn. What would it take for Democrats to actually win a U.S. Senate seat here?
0: Well, I think they need the right electoral environment. This year was indeed advantage Republican, so any Democrat running was going to have significant headwinds against them. I go back to the standard mantra that I uh, talked about earlier, and that is simply turnout. If you turn out your voters at levels that rival or equate to your political opposition, you will have a fairly good chance of winning, making it more than just the margin of victory within the margin of error of the polls. And I think for Democrats, particularly with 2024, a open seat governor's race is going to be crucial in this state presidential election year, so the dynamics present themselves, but they have to start thinking about now. How do we prepare for 2024 and get our ground game in such a situation that we can be competitive with Republicans and try and figure out the unaffiliated voter?
1: All right. Michael Bitzer with Catawba Catawba College. Professors, thanks as always. We do appreciate it. My pleasure. All right. More Flashpoint after this. Folks, before we leave you, come interact with us on social media. Let us know what did you think about today's show. And if you have something you want us to talk about here on Flashpoint, let us know that too. And as always, remember to listen and subscribe to our podcast. You can find it wherever you get yours. And we'll see you back here next weekend.